Military Veterans in Journalism proudly presents Sword and Pen. Good morning, afternoon, or evening. My name is Drew Lawrence. I'm your host for Sword and Pen, the Military Veterans in Journalism podcast. Today we have a really special guest. His name is Dan Lamoff. He's a national security reporter for the Washington Post. And Dan, before we, we get into this, I just want to be upfront about um, this is the first in-person interview that I've done for this show and really since, you know, starting podcasting. So thanks for being here. Uh, I want to add a little color to the beginning of the, the uh, interview. We were in my office. We have some ambient noise in the wind coming back on this really nice Sunday afternoon, and we're both drinking iced Dunkin' coffee, which I think is a great uh, callback to where we're both from. Yeah, Massachusetts for both of us. Yeah. Um, so you, you're from Chicopee, right? I am. Uh, kind of a mill town along the Connecticut River in Western Mass. That's awesome. Um, and how, how long did you, you live in Massachusetts? Uh, till I moved down here. So you're talking first 24, 25 years. Wow. So, um, I definitely want to talk, we could talk about Massachusetts all day. This is going to slowly turn into a Massachusetts sports and dog podcast, um, as it goes on. But, uh, what I do want to talk about first up front, the important stuff is your reporting. And I want to talk, um, about what you've done with Ukraine um, what you've done in the pullout of Afghanistan, um, and every everything else since then. So, uh, the first thing I want to want to talk a little bit about is, you know, you do these really great um, roundups for these background background briefs um, for what's happening um, in Ukraine, and I, I just want to ask, why do you do that, and why do you think it's important to uh, be transparent about what these these background briefs are? Yeah, so they, they've been doing these background briefings near daily, not every day, but close. I just saw value in sharing it, especially seeing just the complete hunger there is for information uh, in this space. And so much of the information that's out there on this war is coming at us very quickly with little context. Uh, I've been trying to be very careful about what I'm sharing that, that is not through my own eyes. Uh, so when it comes to videos getting, that are getting passed on Telegram or, you know, something on TikTok that's been, you know, shared, you know, 20,000 times, but I'm not even sure it's from this war myself. I mean, there's there's things that are obvious and then and there's, uh, you know, propaganda is a serious thing in this conflict. Why I value these backgrounders and, and there there's a lot of serious boundaries on what they're willing to say and things they're not willing to confirm as well. I look at it as a serious, credible voice and the things they are willing to confirm, uh, layering that on top of my other reporting, my colleagues reporting, you know, things that we're all watching and just the, the more I can share that I'm sure about or as sure about it as I can be, you know, trying to just be a voice and a reason in the middle of all this chaos. Absolutely. And, you know, talking a little bit about that chaos, you know, the Washington Post, a lot of other um, news sources have done um, a really great job of sifting through um, some of these videos to make sure that they're you know not specific to propaganda to verify them. Um, is that something that, that you're involved in, or ha- can you tell us a little bit about the um, kind of the inner workings on what it takes to verify some of the the chaos that's happening in Ukraine right now? 
Uh, I've assisted on some of it and I've watched even more of it. Um, and what I would say is there's a very long list of videos that uh, the Washington Post as a whole is sorting through uh, and we're not able to verify uh, probably a majority of them. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that's sort of sitting in a queue or sitting on the cutting room floor and you know based on who turned on or off their geolocation or whatever other methods you might use to, to you know, verify that something actually occurred where people are saying it did, you know, at the time they're saying it did, sorting through that matters. And in this war with everything being as emotional as it is and, and so many people having a vested interest in, in, you know, things getting twisted one way or another, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff where, you know, the video comes across and then it's like, all right, what can we do to, to fact check that this actually is what people are saying it is? And... Some of that is, is geolocation and, and metadata and stuff like that. Uh, I'm not an expert on, on, on that stuff for sure, but uh, where I come in handy and, and, and where assumably you know, folks like you and listeners would come in handy too is it's also what, what, are, what am I looking at? You know, what kind of vehicles are in it? You know, what kind of weapons are in it? Um, and you know, the whole not a tank thing, like that, that sort of thing matters here. And I think a lot of times I find myself saying not just, hey, this is X, but also, hey, I'm not sure that this is X. Uh, so let's pair this back, you know, based on what's left of this vehicle. It might be a tank. It might be some other vehicle with tracks based on a burned out shell. I can't really tell necessarily easily. So why don't we just leave it as something a bit more vague, an armored vehicle, whatever, and, and at least be sure that what we are saying is true. And so... You know, with with all that chaos, with the work that the Washington Post is doing to to verify all these things, um, in your reporting specifically, what's something that you want your uh, audience to know about this war? What do you what do you prioritize when you're telling a story to make you know the uh, clarity clear through all of the the chaos? So I think especially when you're covering a war and you're not actually on the ground you're you're tending to do more of the stories of what's the strategy uh you know what's the trend line uh, when you're on the ground you're doing you know what's the tragedy or 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 you know chaos in front of me on a given day and you know I've covered it both ways with other with other wars so uh, what I'm trying to do I think especially from the Pentagon side of things now is trying to establish what we can see more of from the 10,000 foot view, uh, try to establish why certain things might be happening, um, knowing that there are a lot of other people who are closer uh, that are seeing things through their own eyes. Uh, for me, they are better suited to be the ones saying what happened on a given street corner on a given Tuesday. Right. And, you know, this, of course, all, the, all these stories are coming breakneck off uh, the United States leaving uh, Afghanistan, which is a, is a um, you know country that you've you've covered extensively throughout your career, and one thing that I from you know talking to veterans, um, you know as the as the media shifts from covering one to another, um, is you know a sense of uh, or a lack of resolve um, for for some of the stories that were you know, being told about Afghanistan. Do you, do you feel that as a reporter having covered, um, that country that, you know, some of the stories are, 
um, are still out there, but you know, there's there's other things that need to be covered. Or do you think that Afghan stories are, are still pushing through, and and you know, they're they're important to be told, um, and they're being told. I do think it's important that they're told. Um, I think one thing that uh, I probably share with with a majority of your listeners is frustration that even when they are told, they're not always heard. Uh, that that a lot of people tend to turn the page. Uh, you know, they tend to turn you know change the channel when an Afghanistan story comes on because you know it dragged on so long and and you know it, it sounded like ground, Groundhog Day for a lot of time where it was you know. You know, from those years of, I think, especially 2014 on, you know, when we didn't have many troops left, but we had some, uh, but the thing kind of became a long, slow slog and no real sense that it was changing quickly. Uh, it was easy to kind of say, oh, I've heard that story before. A lot of people, I think, tended to tune out the nuance, uh, tune out the steady shifts uh, and... Whether or not that changes how it ended, I don't know, but I think it probably didn't look as much of a surprise how it ended for folks that had been paying attention closely uh, than it did for a lot of Americans who were like, oh my God, look at this, you know, you know, chaos and tragedy that I'm seeing, you know, over the span of two weeks and one month. Uh, you know, it kind of had, it had a pressure cooker kind of feel to it, I think, for me. And, you know, speaking of the ending, you and uh, your colleague, Alex Horton, who's also an Army veteran, you guys both did uh, really great work getting documents uh, that gave the public an inside view on, on how it ended, uh, the pullout specifically what happened at Abbey Gate, um, which, uh, you know, for me and, um, you know, many other people, like in the public, was such an important thing to see. Can you tell us a little bit about you know, how you went about reporting that, how did you, you know, FOIA that, just kind of some of the technical details for for our listeners. Yeah, um, one of the things that, that, that I've done for years, and, and not all reporters do, but, but, but there are many others who do it well, um, is, is kind of pressing on the Freedom of Information Act front uh, to try and get documents out of given events. They don't always come when they want, when you want them to, they don't have what you hope they would have in them. You know, there's times where, you know, key sections are stripped out or, or redacted or blacked out in there. Um, but, but you never know. And, and, and for me, it's worth the exercise to at least try. So we put in a number of requests. Uh, and it was one that came back to Alex, actually, initially. Um, was a request for what happened uh, at Abbey Gate. Uh, and... Alex was actually in Ukraine prior to the invasion when the, when this came back. So he had limited opportunity and time to to really go all through this. So he immediately flagged it for us back in D.C. Uh, it came on a Friday afternoon after they had had a Pentagon briefing about sort of their top-line findings of this investigation, focusing very narrowly on whether or not the explosion itself was preventable. Their Their assessment was it was not something they could have really changed, that they had done all they could. Um, and, the, and the rollout of the documents that day at the Pentagon was, was relatively finite. I mean, it was a couple dozen pages, more or less their summary of events, uh, and it didn't have any you know, long-form interviews in it, nothing like that. Late in the day, that same day, is when the documents came back to us. 
And anytime you see documents come back like that, the first question I'm always asking is, who else has this? So in this case, it comes out on a Friday night, 2,000 pages, give or take, 2,100, something like that. Um, and, and they get dumped in your lap all at once. And you're not sure whether or not you're the only one looking at it, and you're not sure how long you have before they may release it to a wider audience. So that whole weekend, uh, I, you know, I worked on those documents from probably 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. Friday night, probably 12 hours on Saturday. I'm categorizing them. I'm pulling out nuggets. I'm, uh, you know, trying to put them in different buckets. Uh, you know, different things that happened, different uh, different people that were interviewed. And what was really striking in there was that the interviews um, had the senior leadership, that the senior leadership shared a number of their frustrations in very candid language. Those are all individuals that the media couldn't get to through August and really even after that. Uh, a lot of those folks, nobody had heard from publicly. So I knew we had a big story right away. Uh, and then it becomes, okay, we need to give these people an opportunity to add any context they would like. We need to talk to people that these people may have criticized so that they have a chance, to, you know, because we're trying to be fair. But we're also trying to hustle to make sure we get this out as quickly as possible. So I ended up doing three stories, three, three big stories and a couple kind of reaction stories within the span of about a week. Uh, Alex helped on the first one. And then after that with him in Ukraine, I kind of just picked up the picked up the baton and kept going. And yeah, I mean, I thought it was a, a striking coda uh, on on everything that we all watched in August and filled in a lot of gaps on, on understanding. Uh, I think it was an inconvenient set of stories for a lot of folks that had tried to downplay how ugly uh, August was. Um, for me, it was an above politics story of this is what happened. This is what people who were there said happened. Um, and there were so many people interviewed that their statements were all there more or less in full that, you know, I felt pretty good that, you know, you could say, you know, these nine Marines or these 13 Marines or these, you know, these three senior officers shared X, Y, Z views. And it was, I mean, once you have the documents, that's the hard part is getting the documents. Once you have it, then it's just a matter of relaying that in digestible format and making sure other people have a chance to respond. And was there anything specific that was shocking to you? You know, I know you said that there was the quotes from the senior leaders and, and stuff like that, but was there anything that, you know, looking back on those 2000 pages that just stuck out in your mind? Yeah, I, th I think um, the, the amount of things that were just like wholesale left out of the public discussion in August, um, you know, that there was... Obviously, you had the violence on the tail end with that bombing, but you also had firefights on base, on, on, on HKIA, on that airport, uh, on the front end of this evacuation beginning, where you literally had Marines exchanging fire with Taliban, with civilians wandering around on the runway, too. Uh, I had not heard that in any kind of detail. There were hints that maybe something like that had happened, and we all knew that there was, you know, periodic gunfire with no real sense for who was shooting or where or why. Uh, but, but when you start seeing, you know, a battalion commander level guy uh, relaying his account of why his Marines opened fire and why he thought they were well within their rights in that situation, like those are details that nobody really had any sense of back in August. And it gives you a sense for how much worse this whole 
thing could have played out, as bad as it was and as chaotic as it was, it could have been even worse. And, I mean, that was one of the things that, that struck me as well as the level of detail in some of the, the sworn statements that were included, too, because, you know, while you said that they were, there were a lot of senior leader comments that were there, a lot of them were for, from junior Marines or junior officers, uh, you know, junior soldiers that were on the ground, especially when recounting, um, you know, the Abbey Gate. Did you, uh, how, how did that strike you, like, having those included? Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... I think it's good to have a full set of statements because you often end up people with a variety of experience walking into this sort of event. So some of them are familiar with being under fire. Some of them are not. Uh, some of them see it through their own eyes. Some of it only hear it because they're farther down the road or something like that. So to be able to layer all this stuff on top of each other and try and make sense of, okay, here's what probably happened but then here's also how these other folks think they saw it. And, and while there, there seems to be sort of a, a best case sense for how it probably went down based on layering all this information together, uh, to also share that there are people who, who disagree with that. You know, and, and, that, and I think that particularly comes up, uh, you know, that there's been some discussion about whether or not uh, Marines came under gunfire after the explosion. The Pentagon's overall assessment was that this was not a complex attack. But you also had a whole lot of Marines, you know, not two, but probably, you know, closer to a dozen that heard gunfire. Some of them said they saw it. Uh, some of them, you know, described, you know, even the sound of it. You know, it, yeah, there, there were an interview or two where you've got, a, you know, people with serious experience, recon Marines, snipers, that sort of thing, where they're coming out and saying, you know, I heard this snap. Because it was a snap, I know it wasn't that far away. Now maybe they were, maybe they were wrong. Maybe it was all these other things going on. But that's a pretty credible voice in this. That you know, this is somebody with previous combat experience. This is not some rookie. So like, I thought it was important to relay all that. You know, like that this is a much more complex event than probably was widely understood. And I mean, even even then, it just goes to show you. You know, com comparing the coverage happening. In Ukraine right now, like you have this 2,000 page comprehensive report with these experienced voices with, you know, pictures coming out with, you know, American officials who are on the ground um, verifying, you know, some of these things. And, and even then, there's a there's an amount of chaos that uh, comes with it. Uh, do, do you agree with that? Do you see that, you know, comp comparison playing out? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one thing that, that strikes me about covering Ukraine, and I think this is this is even the case for the folks on the ground, is there are so many gaps in information in, in terms of what we can definitely say and, and things that are sort of unclear and even basic stuff. You know, like, there, you know, there have been descriptions of missiles hitting buildings that turned out to be planes that had been shot down. There have been, you know, descriptions of missiles hitting buildings where you're not sure who fired that missile. You know, is it an anti-aircraft weapon that happened to, you know, be fired the wrong direction? Uh, is it a Russian missile? Is it a Ukrainian missile that was, you know, misfired? Uh, all of these things have to be sorted through. And, and I think we're all having to get comfortable with saying we don't know. There's a whole lot of stories right now that have to say it is not clear at if X, Y, Z. And, and I don't know that we'll ever clarify some of those X, Y, Zs. And do you think that's, 
I mean, do you think that's a, a, a appropriate admission? I mean, I, and I'll, I'll just, you know, from, from my side, like, I, I appreciate that clarity when, you know, so maybe someone's on camera or someone's writing and, you know, there's, there's something there where, you know, 80, 90% sure that it is, but there's still a 10% chance and you got to say that, right? Do you, do you agree that that's, you know, an appropriate transparent admission? Yeah, no, I, I think you have to. And I, and I think if you're not, uh, you're setting yourself up for failure later because maybe you got it right this time. But, but it's a matter of time when you're doing these things and you say it, you know, affirmatively with no question in your voice uh, over how something went down. Um, that when there's that much confusion, it's a matter of time before you guessed wrong. And so you just don't want to guess at all. You say what you know, you say what you don't know, you say why you think it probably is something, uh, and then and then you continue to get at it tomorrow. And so shifting shifting gears a little bit now, um, you know, I was reading this uh, great uh, piece that actually came from your alma mater, University of Massachusetts, Amherst, um, and they did a uh, alumni spotlight on you. Um, which I thought was awesome. I think that's, I, I love when, when schools do that, they reach out. Um, and, you know, at the end of it, you kind of, you talked a little bit about how, you know, you're giving some, some input on um, internships, how, how people can get experience. Uh, and then you wrote, you know, you kind of, you got to be lucky too. You know, you, you said that you got lucky. What, what do you, I, I want to pick on that. Like, what do you mean by that? And how do you match that up with like going for, um, you know, getting as much experience as possible? What do you mean? Um, yeah, I mean, if I had to say how I got to where I am in kind of broad themes, I mean, I, hard work is certainly a part of it. You got to keep grinding. Um, and, and I think I've done that. And, and I think I've done that both in the traditional sense of the word of working extra hours and taking on long trips and, you know, sleeping in the dirt and all those sorts of ways, but, but also, uh, being willing to be flexible and, and take on assignments that maybe you didn't picture yourself doing five years prior. Um, but, but the lucky side of it is also you can do all those things and, and still struggle. You can do all those things and not get the, you know, not get the cool internship. You can do all those things and, you know, finish second uh, when it comes to job search time and, and watch somebody else get the job that you probably could have done a really good job with. You know, sometimes it's not even whether or not you were uh, qualified or not. It was whether or not uh, they thought the other person was a better fit. Or, and, and a lot of those things are really subjective and it can be really frustrating. Um, you know, I, I'm someone who missed out on almost all the big internships. Um, you know, I wasn't selected as a Washington Post intern. I wasn't selected as a New York Times intern. I wasn't selected as a Boston Globe intern. I still have all those letters. You know, like, you know, like I think, you know, we, it's, there's nothing wrong with kind of being proud of making it despite some, some roadblocks along the way. Um, but I think it's important when you hit those roadblocks to say, okay, what next? Okay. That didn't work out. What are my other options? Um, and, and be creative about it and, and be willing to try things that maybe you didn't think you'd have to do. And I think my career is not at all what I probably would have planned when I was 20. Uh, in a lot of ways, it's better. Um, but I think that comes because I was willing to say, okay, what are my options here? How can I do something meaningful and, and stop focusing on 
you know, doing exactly what I might down, you know, what I what I set out on, you know, my life plan, and more just let me do cool stories, let me do stuff that that matters, and if it's not the stuff that you know maybe I set out 15 years prior, so be it. Like maybe maybe it's better, maybe it's cooler. Um, so much of this is luck of the draw in terms of uh, when the jobs open, uh, how you know, and then they, and then even beyond that, you can bust your butt your whole life, do incredible journalism, and watch other people win awards because you know the the, the story of the hour wasn't the story that was your beat, and, and you know just take it, you know do your job, be proud of you the work you're doing, be you know focus on doing the job in front of you right on a given day and and the rest will come so let's go back to uh 20 year old dan and in the start of that that hard work um you know did you did you always know you wanted to go into journalism and, and how did you start definitely wanted to be a journalist um but i think there's a lot of folks in in foreign policy journalism and military journalism who say they wanted to be a war correspondent right along or wanted to be in Washington right along. I was none of those things. Um, I grew up in a you know relatively small town. I never got on an airplane until I was 21 years old. Um, I, I wanted to be a guy covering cops and crimes and explaining why neighborhoods were struggling. And uh, you know, if you'd asked me what my career aspirations were at 20, I probably would have said be a Metro columnist at a place like the Boston Globe. Uh, you know, do, you know, do stories of, you know, neighborhoods that need help and, and the, the unsung heroes in those places and, uh, you know, people that slip through the cracks and explaining why and, and here, you know, elevating some of those voices so that you're not just, you know, talking to the mayor and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I think I would have been good at that, but I also think a lot of those jobs no longer exist, you know, based on the way journalism has shifted so much of the local newspaper world is so much smaller than it used to be. Uh, and if I had stayed on that career course, I'd be doing something else by now. I probably wouldn't be in journalism at all. And, you know, talking a little bit about that, that track, um, and it's funny that you, you mentioned that some of those things, jobs not, not existing anymore, some of the, the tracks not existing, that's kind of a common thing that, you know, I've heard from, from journalists like you, um, experienced ones who say, you know, it's kind of, almost tough to give advice um, now because some of the ways that you and others have, you know, gotten to where you are may not, may not be there anymore. It's very, or they may still be, but it's just very different. Um, is that, does that ring true to you as well? Definitely does. Um, and, and I, and I would say what applied when I was getting out of college in 04, probably no longer applied by 2010. What I did when I was starting out in military journalism, 2008, no longer applies either. So, I mean, I, I think it's some of it's trying to assess what your options are on a given summer, uh, you know, and just trying to do something that you won't necessarily regret later. And I don't mean that just in the sense of, you know, oh, I hate I took an internship that was a better option. But also, I think all of us uh, need to take the long view of remembering that certain places, certain partisan outlets, things like that. You can box yourself in. You, know, you take the wrong job, and there are there are times where that will limit your options later. Uh, so, for me, like I mean, I'm kind of an old school guy in terms of you know trying to cover the news as straight as I can. 
you know, there are other options. You can, you know, do more political style journalism. You can, you know, include your opinion and, and, and go that route. But the more of your opinion you put in your own journalism early on, it, it will rule out a lot of those more traditional outlets later. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, you can always stay and start, you know, the straight news route but once you once you leave it it's hard to to get back in right yeah it is and i and and i think that's you know if if somebody pulls up your last 50 stories and and you're hyper partisan in any direction it's going to be hard for them to look at it and say okay now let's include this particular person um you know as somebody that we want that's going to then cover it straight for us because their, their views are already out there and, and, and readers and especially people that are looking to kind of, you know, drag you, uh, are going to pull that stuff out. They're going to pull out the old stuff and, and, you know, cast aspersions on you regardless where you stand on the issues. So, I mean, I try to, to you know, I try to offer analysis in terms of here's why something might be happened, but I try also not to like, you know, like make it personal. Like, I think as soon as you do make it personal, you start limiting your options later. And so, did, when you were at UMass, did you did you write for the UMass paper? Did you write for you know a local paper? Uh, all of the above. Uh, I so the UMass newspaper is a very tra- proud tradition. I'm actually going uh, back to UMass soon uh, for an alumni event, and, and I'll be speaking at that. Uh, and and that, that that's exciting to me, like just to go back and kind of see that they got a new newsroom. Newsroom when I was there was really run down. Like it was a dump. Uh, and kind of proudly so. It was in the basement and, you know, you know, no daylight, uh, old furniture that was yeah, probably where pulled. journalists should be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> old couches that had been probably pulled off the, you know, out from a dumpster somewhere. I mean, it was that sort of feel to it. Uh, yeah, I did stuff there. I started as a columnist, uh, you know, and it was mostly like trying to focus on what was happening on campus. Um, and shifted into news coverage um uh, spent some time covering uh police spent time some time covering administration uh worked spent some time as a news editor uh and in my senior year i was managing editor so not running a whole newspaper but in charge of the newsroom uh and, and the editor-in-chief and i were, were really close and even back then it, it so she and i are at one point prior to there being an election for editor-in-chief we both looked at each other and said you know, we're, we're the two seasoned hands here, and either one of us would probably be good at this. So let's support each other in whichever way that election goes. Uh, you know, more or less, we got each other's back, and, and we'll get it. And actually, in retrospect, I think it probably worked better for me to not be editor-in-chief because it allowed me to focus more on the news coverage and making the newspaper good. And she was incredible with graphics, and um, she was a real team builder, and I think she was really good in that role so like i think things kind of work out the way they do for a reason uh, while doing that i also did uh internships at a couple local newspapers one was in northampton uh gazette uh, another one was in springfield mass uh, the republican and, and ultimately my first job after college was at the springfield newspaper it's it's always interesting hearing how people got their start because it centers around the question of how do you start um and, you know, you, you have how you started, but like we, we established, it's not, you know, it may not be the same now. So if you were to give yourself advice, you know, in 2022, what would you tell 2022 Dan starting out to do to start in journalism? 
One thing is uh, don't be afraid to move. Uh, I think probably less so for, for vets because they've seen the world. Uh, but I think in general, a lot of journalists are either... Um, I think there's a lot of folks that are uncomfortable with the idea of starting over new. And I think that's especially hard probably for a non-traditional student who's, you know, maybe an enlisted vet and it's like, okay, I'm, I'm 30 and now I need to bounce around again and start. And some of the other, you know, newer people coming in are going to be significantly younger than me. Um, that, that can be hard, um, uh, for sure. Um, but, but I think it's important to look for options uh, that presents you with a, um, a path. Uh, not just a job of the day, but like, okay, if I do this for two, three years, it may leave some other doors open that, you know, if I do these two, three years, well, then there will be another two, three years after that. Um, I think one thing that really worked out well for me was coming to DC. Uh, it's not for everyone. Um, but, but I think we have reached a, a world right now where at least for the time being, a lot of the media jobs uh, are concentrated in New York and DC and maybe Los Angeles. So, that can be frustrating if you don't want to live in those places. Uh, but I think in terms of finding opportunities, that those need to at least be things you're considering, uh, particularly if you're going to use the skills you have as a, as a veteran uh, that make you unique, that make you stand out, that make you not a dime a dozen 22-year-old reporter that's just getting out of college. Um, those are things I would at least consider. Was it easy for you to, to come down here? You know, no, not at all. Um, and I think this is the case for Massachusetts folk frequently. Uh, I think we're a very tribal sort. Uh, I think a lot of us don't really want to go someplace where there's not a Dunkin' Donuts every fifth corner and somebody talking about the socks in the bar somewhere. Um, so yeah, I mean, I was somebody who came down here reluctantly. Initially, it was for a one-year grad school program at the University of Maryland. Um, I looked at it as like, okay, well, I'll give this a try. Um, and I didn't know if I'd stay. And I didn't necessarily really want to stay either. Uh, but it was kind of, okay, let's give this a shot and let's see where it goes. Uh, my first job out of, out of grad school was um, at Marine Corps Times, uh, kind of as their entry-level uh, person. They had a position at the time called deputy news editor uh, where you were sort of a half-time reporter and half-time uh, doing sort of basic editing skills, not the, not the high level stuff, but you know, processing letters to the editor and writing briefs and things like that, really unsexy stuff. Uh, but it gave you a chance to uh, kind of immerse yourself in the, in the newsroom, uh, get your feet under you, that kind of thing. Their big, uh, their big pitch in, at the time to a lot of the entry level hires was, we'll teach you the military or we'll teach you journalism but they were looking for somebody that at least had one of those two things down. Um, so I walked in probably as an, you know, relatively experienced for, a, I think I was 24, maybe 25 at that point. I think I just turned 25 when I started because I, I graduated in December 07 from that grad school program. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, walking in, fire hose, weapons, terminology, acronyms, all that stuff, all that stuff. It, it took a lot of work to get spun up on that. A lot of reading my free time, a lot of reading uh, uh, books, uh, you know, war books, things like that, you know, accounts of previous battles, history books, 
uh, just trying to get yourself spun up on something. Um, that's something that I think a lot of vets are going to be are, are going to have a leg up on. But whatever your experience in the military is, it's not going to be as well-rounded to the point where you're uh, able to cover down on all that stuff. You know, if you served in the Navy, do you really understand, you know, Air Force aviation or nuclear policy or, you know, something that's completely far afield from your particular experience? So I think even if you have a military background, there's still going to be a whole lot of catching up to do. And... You know, with the, the um, Marine Corps times, you know, you, when we talked before, you um, said you had some really in-depth uh, stories on, you know, things that were pretty technical, um, you know, like machine guns and stuff like that. Is there is there one that sticks out in your mind that was kind of like your introduction into like, you know, the technicality of some of these things? Yeah, um, I did a... A number of stories uh, on the Marine Corps' push at the time to drop the squad automatic weapon uh, in favor of the infantry automatic rifle. Uh, and there was a long history of that. They had been playing with adopting the IAR uh, in some places uh, in the Marine infantry for years, and it was always sort of this in the background thing. Uh, I did stories that, like, we, we turned them into cover stories. So you had this infantry automatic rifle that there had been a long discussion of whether or not to adopt it as sort of the new squad level weapon. Uh, obviously, you have some infantrymen who carry a rifle. Uh, this was, you know, more or less something separate from the M16 uh, or an M4. The idea at the time was that carrying this squad automatic weapon provided you with a lot of firepower, but the accuracy wasn't necessarily there, and there, there had been a long debate on, on what was the best play. Uh, and there was this uh, chief war officer, um, Marine Corps gunner, uh, named Jeff Eby, um, and, and he did a number of, of interviews with me where, uh, you know, I'm walking into this relatively cold, uh, and he would walk me through why he thought what he thought. Uh, he would share pretty technical data and then explain to me the background on that technical data, uh, and 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 that's probably a good lesson I think for all of us. There's people that don't necessarily love the media, uh, but but want uh, their story told. They want uh, the, their point to be out there, and if you can find those folks and and come in relatively uh, humble and say with some humility, I don't understand, but please help me to understand so that we can share this story so we can share your point of view and a guy like gunner eb like you know he's somebody that like his patience with me in numerous interviews was really helpful and i and i think we were able to advance the ball on the marine corps understanding on that subject and and i didn't really have a position i i kind of on the subject i just knew it was important ultimately after i left marine corps times they did adopt uh the automatic rifle and, and Sort of minimize the the, the saw, uh, and there are still Marines that feel some kind of way about that. But it was at least an important st subject that was way out of my depth when I started. That I, I was able to kind of gradually grow an understanding of. Now, obviously, the Marine Corps Times has a you know pretty specific audience, um, uh, but also you know a very wide audience that that goes to the public. Um, how you know how do you tell those technical stories that? you know, both appease, you know, the Marine, but also give a better understanding to the public? 
I always thought it was important uh, while writing in a trade newspaper, which is what Marine Corps Times is, to try and bridge those two audiences. So you want to include the technical stuff that you maybe would leave out of a Washington Post story, but you want to do so in a way that the general purpose reader isn't going to trip and fall and, and just put it down because it's too dense for them. Admittedly, I don't always know where that line is. Uh, and, and even now with the Washington Post, uh, we include some of that technical detail when it's relevant. Um, but we try not to bog down general purpose readers with stuff that isn't necessarily germane to the story at the moment. So it's kind of a balancing act of, okay, how much should I include? Coming in, I'm usually trying to include as much of that as I can because I'm trying to leave little Easter eggs for readers. Whether it's a 7.62 round or a 5.56 round, uh, matters to a certain segment of my readers. So when I can, I try to include that kind of detail. Uh, but that stuff's over the head of a lot of other people. So um, it's a balancing act. And so you, you've had some, some embed time. Can you tell us a little bit about what that experience was like? Because the MVJ audience, uh, a lot, there are a lot of people who, who would like to do that. Um, but, you know, as we're seeing now and, um, some of those opportunities are, are few and far between. So what was your time like? And for those who want to go that route, what would be your best advice to get there? Uh, yeah, I guess if I add it up, I've done easily a dozen. Um, they vary a great deal, though. Um, when I first started embedding, um, I f it was 2010. Uh, so I missed out on all the early Iraq stuff. Um, and a lot of my editors at Marine Corps Times and Army Times they had months of experience with combat units in Iraq and through the heyday of, you know, 05, 06, that era. You could spend two, three months easily, straight. Uh, and, and at one point, Army Times actually had an apartment in Kuwait. So you wouldn't even go home. You would kind of come out, catch a breath, write some stories, and then go right back in. That experience is above and beyond anything I, I did. Uh, what I did... Uh, especially early uh, in my career was kind of month long, six weeks, four weeks, five weeks at a time. Um, so I did, the first one was spring 2010. I went back in spring 2012, went back in fall 2012. And for me, it was all Afghanistan because by the time I was trained up, Iraq was kind of winding down. Uh, you know, we were, you know, we ended our uh, initial cycle there in 2011. So to kind of join a newspaper and especially the Marine Corps was really angling to get into Afghanistan at that point. You know, they talked about it often. We need to get back to our austere roots and we need to go to, you know, we need to assist on Afghanistan as they were pulling out of Iraq ahead of the army. Um, so I went uh, to Helmand province in, mm, I think I left April 30. So you're basically talking like a May 1 embed, give mm -hmm. or take. Um, and spent until mid-June on that first trip in Afghanistan. Um, I spent about three weeks straight with 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines in Marja. Uh, Marja was the main effort at the time, especially in Helmand. I mean, there were other main efforts elsewhere in Afghanistan, but that was a serious fight. Uh, I didn't want to bite off more than I could chew. There, was, there had been a major Marine Corps push into Marja in February of 2010. Um, that seemed to be more than I was comfortable with. And I think in retrospect, that was the right call. You, you don't want to get in over your head. Uh, so I showed up uh, kind of at the beginning of the traditional Marine Corps uh, 
So I showed up at the beginning of the traditional uh, fighting season in Afghanistan. And they seemed to think they had a handle on Marja at the time. And it really, that, that, that district that they created um, really exploded in violence right as I got there. Uh, so they lost a lot of Marines in that late April, May time frame. Uh, and I showed up right as that was all happening. So, yeah, I got into multiple firefights that month. Uh, I was in a convoy where the vehicle in front of mine exploded. Uh, everybody walked away, thank God, on that particular one. But, uh, yeah, it was a real eye-opener. You know, that, that month, I mean, I think I grew up in a lot of ways that month. You know, I was, you know, my mid-20s at that point, I think 27 if I, remember, I would remember right. So even in, you know, pushing, pushing 30 already. Uh, but, you know, I think my life changed forever on that month uh, for better and worse. Uh, like a lot of other folks who spend time in war zones. Uh, I wouldn't change it. Uh, but, you know, it's a formative experience. I went back in 2012, uh, spent all of April that month, and then went back on the third trip and spent all of October of 2012. And I picked different months partly deliberately. Uh, I wanted to go for pop poppy season. I wanted to be there when the flowers were there. Uh, for me, it was it was going to be good visuals, but it was also just a different experience. The first time I had gone May into June, the flowers are already harvested. You're left with wide open flat fields. For the first trip, that meant it's also traditionally where you're more likely to get shot at. But I went in April because I wanted to see that transition. Uh, you know, and, and watch harvesters, you know, take down flowers and, and just that surreal experience of watching somebody harvest something that you know might end up being heroin soon. It's just a bizarre feeling. You add those trips up, those first three first trips, I guess I'm pushing three to four months in the field at, from those three first trips. Lots of patrols, close to one, one a day at one point. Yeah, I'd usually lose 10 pounds in, in, in a given month when I was there, you know, and it's I guess that makes sense for somebody who's not, you know, pushing the PT quite as much as, as, as those grunts are. I have a lot of fond memories of that time, and then I also have, you know, baggage that we all deal with. How'd you feel coming back each time to the States? Uh, different. Um, I mean, I never was somebody who lost sleep. Uh, I'm grateful for that. But yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I remember having a, a hair trigger temper. For, for a minute on the first trip in particular. Um, it's been a little jumpy, I suppose. Um, but, you know, the transition was good. I always went home after, go back to Mass, see, see, your, see your mom and dad, see your aunts and uncles, eventually, um, you know, just spend time with the people you care about. And that always helped. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was always cognizant of, you know, there were days where you never know which step could be your last, uh, and that, that does take a toll. And each trip had a slightly different feel. The spring 2010 trip, uh, IEDs were a concern on the road, but it was the primary concern on foot patrols was snipers. Uh, the spring 2012 trip, I was in Sangin and Kajaki. Uh, Sangin was a minefield. Uh, Sangin was a place with a lot of anti-personnel IEDs. So it, booby traps was a much bigger concern. Uh, you know, and I remember being on patrols where the basic MO was that if you got shot at, don't dive the way you would have a year and a half prior in Marja, because uh, that might actually be what you're trying to get, to get you to do. And they, they more or less told you, like, 
get down low but stay on the road. Uh, and yeah, that's just a different feel. I mean, it, it, the way those tactics change over time, uh, I mean, that's part of the story. And I know you said, you know, when you, each time you'd come back, you'd go, you know, see your folks, spend some time in Massachusetts. Um, was there anything else that you did to kind of get your mind right after coming, coming back from those embeds? Um, mostly in just trying to get back to normal life, uh, sports, the gym, um, hiking, uh, for me, just stay active. Um, I think those are probably the biggies. And I think over time, I mean, you know, this is, this is pretty personal, but I, I think it's probably important for, for folks to have this conversation. I steer clear of hard liquor almost entirely. Uh, and I think, you know, like that was something that over time I was like, you know what, I'm a better person when I don't do this. Probably some of the baggage I've carried. Hand me a beer, I'm good. Let's stick with that. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. And I, and I appreciate you sharing that because it's, you know, it's an important uh, thing to talk about. And, you know, sometimes like the uh, conversation comes up about, you know, after doing an embed or after, you know, doing very intense coverage of, of something you know, getting, you know, help or doing things that you need to do to, to get your mind right. Um, but it's not always a, a talked about conversation. And there's such a um, good intersection between, you know, the veteran community, uh, the MBEG community, the journalism community to, to talk about these things openly. So I, I appreciate you being forthright. I think one of the challenges, and I think the, I often hear vets when they talk about coming home, I've heard the comparison made to, you know, hey, if you were coming home from World War II, you would spend weeks making that voyage back. And you probably came back by ship and it took a long time and that helped them with their transition. I think it probably did help some of them. I don't know that it helped all of them because I think we're all pretty aware that there are a lot of World War II vets that carried a whole lot and never really shared it. And I think that, in at least some cases, was to their detriment too. Um, but even if you agree with the idea that that long transition helped help them, uh, I think journalists often get even more abruptly pulled from the battlefield. So, you know, in my case, you could be on patrol on Tuesday and home on Friday. Uh, so that's really abrupt. You know, maybe you have a day or two in Kabul on the way home. You know, and then, but yeah, I mean, it's a commercial flight. You're in and out. I used to fly through Istanbul, two flights and you're home. And you might have spent a night or three total uh, in transition. Uh, you know, maybe you stayed overnight in Turkey or something. But yeah, the, the, the transitions are corrupt. And especially on that first trip, I mean, it was really jarring being back. Uh, you know, and, and I wasn't gone that long. I mean, it was a six-week trip. But, but it's still, I think, you know, like given how much was packed into that one month of May that year, to be thrown back in D.C. mid-June, it's like, it's such an abrupt transition. Weather, uh, what matters, when you sleep, all of it changes like overnight. And um, I think the later trips were easier for me in a couple regards. One, because I had done it before. Uh, two, they were not quite as violent, or at least the threat of violence was not as high. Um, but that first trip, man, that, that took a lot of, you know, like, it was, it was a consequential moment in my life and I'm proud I did it. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it's not something you can just turn off. 
And so for people who want that life, for, for journalists who, you know, want to do embeds, who want to go cover conflict, um, you know, what what's the best way to do it? And kind of a loaded question, but what's a, you know, what advice would you give them that kind of removes some of the romanticism about how we view those types of jobs? Um, so a couple points I would make there. I think one, if you're going in looking to do embedded journalism as your way of covering military op- operations, you're bound to be disappointed in the year 2021, 2022. Uh, there just aren't many opportunities to do that kind of stuff anymore. You're going to have to be creative and think about how you want to do it. And maybe that means covering training, uh, you know, going to a place like 29 Palms or National Training Center or whatever, like you're going to have to do something that uh, isn't, you know, kicking in a door or um, walking in a poppy field in Afghanistan because we're not doing those things anymore as a country. I think the second thing is when you look at the opportunities, the kinds of stuff that are coming up now, uh, you can go to Ukraine. You can cover stuff in Ukraine. You can do it as a freelancer. You can do it with an organization. Maybe you can find somebody that would pay your pay your way. But that comes without a lot of the stuff that I took comfort in, which is to say if I have my leg blown off, I'm surrounded by professionals. If you're in Ukraine on your own, you don't necessarily have that. Your medical pathway is not necessarily clear and it's probably overloaded even when you show up at a given hospital so i'm not saying do it i'm not saying don't do it i'm saying be aware of the decisions you're making and go in with your eyes wide open uh this won't be easy uh, if you're going alone it won't be easy if you're embedded but especially won't be easy if you're going alone right and you know that's not with the you know the medical professionals that's not you know like a uh, you know, dig on on the Ukrainians or anything like that. It's just a very different conflict, right? Different conflict. I mean, we're all watching these images. Yeah. When you're leveling building day after day after day, just the circuits, what it you know, what it takes to get medical care and what they have available for you when you get there. I mean, Ukraine is a place that had major modern cities. This is not, you know, a country that um, is accustomed to this level of conflict. So I mean, I, if you were start if you were to start leveling Chicago or, or DC the same way, you'd see all the same problems. Uh, you know, like just, just nobody's built for this kind of catastrophe, uh, and anybody who's caught in the middle of it, uh, they're going to struggle to get basics: food, water, shelter, medicine. Yeah, if you're covering it, you can take a lot of precautions. You can spend time in bunkers, um, but at some point, you're going to pop your head out and do some reporting and. When you do that, you got to think through, okay, what's my exit? What's my exit today? What's my exit back to my place of safety? Uh, And know that in a conflict that is this significant, even your place of safety is probably a relative place of safety. That's something that anybody who's covering this conflict on the ground is going to have to consider. So going back to um, kind of the pathway uh, for being a journalist, being a veteran um, for, you know, for some of your, your colleagues... You, you've you've worked with journalists who, who are veterans before, right? Bottom, yeah. And, you know, with speaking with them and, and through your own advice, what advice would you have for, for veterans who want to come into journalism or who may already be here but are struggling to break through? I think there's a desire. Uh, 
in a lot of major newsrooms that have some veterans. Um, I think they come in especially handy on stories where very specific technical stuff becomes important, uh, whether that's uh, a school shooting, whether that's um, you know a conflict where now you're needing to dissect what they're seeing on videos. All of that, like th those are things that you, as a veteran, depending on what you did in the military, you probably have some expertise that you can offer that make you different than the other rookie that they might hire. Uh, that is a net positive. Uh, that is something you bring to the table. Um, I think the, the part that becomes a challenge is there's also a lot of veterans that want to get into journalism. So there's a finite number of those pathways too. So thinking through what you can do that might set you apart is helpful, but it can't be the only thing. You, know, you need to be willing to cover feature stories, city council meetings, uh, funerals, you know, any other thing that some you know, relatively junior reporter might get thrown. You might have to edit, you know, edit video. You might need to be bringing some other set of skills that also would set you apart. Um, depending on how you want to go about it, I mean, there are more jobs probably for the young journalist right now on the technical side. Uh, editing video, editing audio, geolocation, stuff like that. Like those are very specific skills that if you can uh, get your arms around and, and become proficient at, they all make you very marketable. And, and in terms of marketability, you know, that's that's something that we, you know, talk a lot about in journalism. And it's, you know, it comes up every so often about um, what that what that means. Because um, some people are hesitant to, to do it. Some people kind of shy away from uh, social media. Um, some people, you know, just wanna just wanna write, but that's not, you know, the world we live in anymore. So, so for you, in terms of making yourself marketable, in terms of veterans making themselves marketable, what, what does that mean? Um, I think it evolves over time, and I think it depends on your personality too. Um, you know, for me, I think one thing that did make me marketable was the fact that I had a pretty frequent uh presence on twitter you know i have a sense of humor and all that on twitter but i'm i'm always cognizant of the fact that anything can be viral and it, it, you know like so it's you're walking the line but the fact that i was willing to be on twitter and explain why things appear to be the way they are or my you know my background reporting on a given subject even if i'm not writing on it on a given day if i understand the subject maybe offering some context context as i think we're you know, Twitter for me is valuable. Um, sorting through the noise there and, and trying to be somebody that, you know, if I had a question on a given story and, and, and I know it's a military-centric story, maybe it'd be at least, you know, if somebody who's on Twitter goes, hey, maybe that Dan Lamoth guy, you know, has, has, has something he's got that he said about this today. That's just a space that I think has, you know, become helpful for me. Over time, um... I got on Twitter before a lot of folks were, you know, you're talking probably back in the 08, 09, I think I started my account there. What that means now, I mean, everybody's on Twitter now as a journalist and generally speaking. Um, so that doesn't set me apart now. Now what sets me apart is the fact that I've got a following and I've, it takes years to build that following. Um, starting over now, uh, I think it's, it's what are the other apps? Uh, I don't, I don't, 
you know, post TikTok videos. Uh, but I imagine somebody's probably going to turn that into a career. And not just the jokey, you know, lighthearted TikTok stuff, but there's serious stuff that people are doing there too. And other apps that are going to come along the way. And, and it's going to take experimentation. I mean, for every five of those, four of them go away within a couple of years. Um, but I think looking for ways that you can set yourself apart uh, is, is valuable there. It's trial and error, I think. Dan, I... I want to tell you again, I appreciate you you being here. I appreciate you sitting and, and us drinking Dunkin' Donuts on this really beautiful Sunday and, you know, listening to my dog click-clack on the uh, hardwood floor, which is, you know, obviously one of the best sounds ever, as you know, with your own dogs. Um, but as this is a journalism podcast, I got to ask you the journalist's favorite question is, is there anything I didn't ask you today that you'd, you know, want MVJ to know about, want the public to know about, anything I didn't cover? I think a point I might make is try to keep the hot takes to a minimum. Uh, I think there's no shortage of folks who have hot takes. Hot takery is a, is, a, is a major thing on social media. It's a major thing in D.C. in general. Um, but having a hot take won't set you apart, even if your hot take gets a handful of retweets on a given day. Uh, for me, it's what can you bring that's hard fact, and, and those hard facts uh, will set you apart as a credible voice on the subject more than uh, questioning somebody's motivation, uh, you know, and, and just all the bad faith stuff you see on social media. Like the more you can just bring that's like legit information, people will value that. And. Is there anything that you have coming up that you're excited about that you you know you want to talk about? Uh, I mean, for me, for the short term, I think it's going to be continued coverage of Ukraine. Uh, that that that's me collaborating with folks on the ground. That's me collaborating with folks covering the other arms of government. So you know, I combine a lot with with our reporters who cover diplomacy and and you know, other aspects of, of how the United States is involved in this. Nothing really sets, stands apart right now. You know, I'm, I'm still looking for ways to, to weigh back into the Afghanistan story in a unique way, but not, nothing that's fully formed and nothing I would scoop myself on by talking about today. Fair enough. But no, th- thanks so much, Dan. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to Sword and Pen, a military veterans in journalism podcast. 